Many of the things that I would like to say from our series in 1 John we will find in Romans chapter 8 as well. And so I think it's very fitting for us to read this chapter in preparation for our worship, the preaching of God's Word. Romans 8, beginning with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. <coughs> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, 
because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear ones, we continue our series through 1 John this Lord's Day, and we come to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. What does the second coming of Christ have to do with practical Christian living? For some, it would seem that Christ's second coming is primarily a question of great curiosity and endless speculation. I myself was once wrapped up in the date-setting books, as many are today. These books sell at a phenomenal rate, as you well know. The money that has been generated from such books is absolutely astounding. One would think that there must be a very godly interest amongst Christians concerning Christ's second coming because of all the books that are written on the subject and all the books that are purchased. But I no longer believe that that is the case. For when the date set by certain authors for Christ's coming passes, some of these same date-setting authors simply correct their views in order to put their new book with their new revised date back into bookstores. Some people just seem to be shameless. And the books with these very new revised dates for the second coming of Christ are gobbled up as quickly as the previous book was. That was wrong. I wonder if anybody stops to think about the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that speaks of false prophets who prophesy concerning things that will occur in the future which do not come to pass. And God says they're to be treated as false prophets. In fact, God says they deserve to die. My own personal observation as both an insider and as an outsider is that I have not witnessed a sanctifying effect in the church due to the apocalyptic craze. The church seems as worldly as ever in its thinking. Or perhaps even worse now than it was before. 
I have not observed a greater faithfulness on the part of these ministers who are wrapped up in this last day's madness in regard to preaching and proclaiming the whole counsel of God. If anything, it seems to me, these are observations that I have made. I can't speak for every single church that holds these views. These are just my own observations. But it seems to me that if anything, preachers in these churches within this movement tend to become preoccupied with using prophetic sermons and prophetic conferences simply to build their church as a means of church growth. And they become very narrow-minded, very focused upon this one issue to the exclusion so often of everything else the Word of God teaches. I've not been impressed by a revival in such churches to emphasize the need for family worship on a regular daily basis or for uncompromising Christian education for their children or for courageous obedience to the commandments of God both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament or for tireless efforts in purifying the worship of our holy God on the Lord's Day. I've been, quite frankly, under-impressed with any real indication of reformation in the family, in the church, or in society coming from such churches. There may be, in these churches, And in this movement, there may be a curious fascination with dates and events related to the second coming of Christ. But practical effect of that doctrine has not gripped the lives of people. Dear ones, the second coming of Christ is a biblical doctrine that is intensely practical and earthly in its application to your life and mine, to the church and to society Let me quickly summarize for you four truths about the second coming of Christ before we look at the, the text today. Four truths concerning the second coming of Christ which should profoundly affect the way you presently think and live. Number one, Christ will come a second time to earth in body as the God-man. That's what the second coming of Christ is all about. He will come a second time. We find, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, where Christ had ascended into heaven, two angels appeared, they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw Him go into heaven. If you believe that He came the first time, if you believe that He was who He claimed to be, then you must believe that He will return in like manner a second time. There can be no doubt about it that Christ will return a second time in body. We find as well in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Not a second, third, and fourth time, as we find in many eschatological schemes, but a second time, only a second time. Not two phases within the second time, one before the tribulation and one after the tribulation and one after the millennium or whatever. But a second time. That is all the Scripture mentions is a second personal bodily appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what implications does that first truth have? We could draw many, many implications from these four truths that I will mention, but I want to just quickly make my way through them. We can make this, this particular implication, first of all, that Christ did accomplish 
a full and complete salvation through His death and resurrection. There is nothing that Christ must do in order to save you, His people. You are redeemed. You are justified. Because Jesus Christ died, He was raised from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and He will return. That same Christ, who accomplished your redemption, will return to offer your complete salvation in the sense of the resurrection, the body that He has promised you, and to give to you the remainder of those benefits that pertain to your adoption as His sons. But He has accomplished already full and complete redemption. There is nothing more for you at all to do. You cannot do anything. The second implication from that first truth is that matter is not evil. Why would Christ have been raised from the dead and come back in His body if matter was evil? If a body was sinful, as the Gnostics said, why would He return bodily? Why would He restore the earth, a new heaven and a new earth? Why not simply everything just be kind of spiritual? No, God created matter, and matter is good. That means that material things can be used for His glory. The money which God gives to you, the possessions that God gives to you, are not evil and wicked. God, however, expects you to use everything that He gives to you of a material nature for His kingdom and for His glory in some way. Indirectly, you should be asking, how should I use this body? How should I use my home? How should I use my food? How should I use every material thing God gives to me to glorify Him, to extend His kingdom? The second truth about Christ's coming is this. Christ's second coming is not imminent and it is not datable. It is not imminent and it is not datable. Eminence, that's a doctrine that again is held by many eschatological positions, but the second coming of Christ, dear ones, cannot occur at just any moment. Christ cannot return according to the Scripture itself today. Certain things must occur according to what God Himself has said. For example, in Psalm chapter 22, Psalm 22, verse 27 through 31, we read these words. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. <clears throat> this speaks of the extension of God's kingdom in such a way as we certainly have not witnessed it to this point. The ends of the earth, all the families of the nations, the kings, the princes. It speaks here of, of death. This certainly cannot pertain to the eternal state because here we see it speaks of even he who cannot keep himself alive. So this is happening in history. We have not witnessed this. Christ cannot return before this occurs. Furthermore, we find in Romans chapter 11 that there is something else. Very similarly, very similar to what I just read, but in Romans chapter 11, we find that these things must occur. Verse 25. Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
The fullness, the full number of the nations, the Gentile nations has come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Lord Jesus came the first time to take away ungodliness from Jacob. He ascended into heaven and he will yet accomplish that according to his word before he returns again. He will bring the nations and he will bring Israel unto himself. We have not witnessed that. But at the same time, I believe the word of God teaches that no one can identify the precise timing of his coming. He has simply not given us that time. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29.29 That is, when Christ returns, is one of those secret things that belongs unto the Lord. It has not been revealed. Therefore, we are sinning if we speculate as to when he will come. As, as if we could set a date as to when he might come. What are the implications of what I have just said, the second truth, that Christ's coming, his second coming is not imminent, and yet it's not datable? <clears throat> Simply this, that between his first coming and his second coming, <clears throat> there's a long period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but we are to be faithful, covenantally faithful, we are to occupy until he returns. We are not to have an escapist mentality that we're polishing brass on a sinking ship. We are to believe that what we are doing today will have consequences for years to come. That covenant faithfulness will be rewarded, will be passed on to our children. That covenant unfaithfulness will likewise be passed on to succeeding generations. What you're doing today counts and matters. See, this is a truth that can presently impact your life. This truth that Christ's coming is not imminent. There is a delay in His coming. And yet no one knows the precise date. It calls us to accountability and stewardship. To be faithful until Christ returns. The third truth is this. Christ's second coming will bring the present age to an end. Christ's second coming will bring the present age to an end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 <clears throat> through 26, beginning with 22. Paul says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So there's the resurrection. Christ is raised first, then those who are Christ at his resurrection are raised. Notice what he says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be destroyed is death there cannot be any successive or continuous history after Jesus Christ returns because death is ended. Now, in again, one of those eschatological schemes, a millennium follows after Christ returns, they say, in which there will be death. This passage very clearly teaches when Christ returns, death, it says, is swallowed up in victory. Verse 54, the same chapter. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? 
Furthermore, in the same chapter, it also says in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When Christ returns, those who inherit that consummated kingdom of God will not inherit it in their mortal bodies. They will be raised. They will be changed. They will be transformed. But again, according to this particular eschatological scheme where there's a millennium that follows the coming of Christ, people do enter into that millennium, it is said, in their mortal bodies. But it says here, flesh and blood cannot enter that kingdom that follows after Christ returns. Dear ones, Christ is victorious when He comes and He brings the present age to an end. He rules over all of history. This teaches that Jesus is Lord. That Christ's second coming confirms His absolute Lordship over all of the nations. Just as the Word of God says about Jesus in Revelation 1.5 that He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. What are some of the implications from this particular truth about Christ's second coming, that Christ brings an end to the present age when he returns? One implication would be this, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all nations and that all nations are therefore obligated to submit to His Lordship, and that all of their laws should conform to the law of God. Since Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Since Jesus Christ returns and puts down all rulers, all authority. He didn't simply receive that authority and that that rule when He returns. He is presently in that state. It has present applications, dear ones, for the way in which you even govern your own life. Jesus Christ is Lord over the history of your own personal life. Jesus Christ rules in your life. He controls all that occurs in your life. That means that as believers, that we must submit every aspect of our life to Him. That we must not withhold anything from Him. That He must be absolutely the Lord in every area. It also means that the church of Jesus Christ, dear ones, will be victorious. That it cannot possibly fail in its mission to disciple the nations because Jesus Christ is the Lord of all history and He will bring history to an end. He will only do so when it is the right time, when He has worked all that He intends to work. And part of what He must work out is to make the church victorious throughout the whole world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see there in that image, the gates of hell. Hell itself is on the defense, but it will not be able to prevail even with all of the gates that it might erect. It will not be able to hold back the onslaught, the movement of the church of Jesus Christ as it tears down every wall, every barrier, everything that it erects itself before the knowledge of God. Jesus, or the Apostle Paul, speaking in Ephesians 1.22, said this concerning Christ. He put all things, that is God, put all things under His feet, Christ's feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church. The head over all things to the benefit of the church. And so everything Christ will use to aid and benefit the church as it moves forward. The last point is simply this. The fourth truth about this particular doctrine of the second coming is this. Christ's second coming will bring the resurrection of all and the judgment of all. Will bring the resurrection of all 
and the judgment of all. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, notice what it says. Jesus speaking says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. One resurrection in which the wicked and the righteous are raised together, but one to a resurrection of life and the other to the resurrection of of condemnation. When will this resurrection occur? Chapter 11, verse 24, John. Martha said to him, this is at the resurrection of Lazarus, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. The resurrection will occur at the last day. Furthermore, we find in chapter 12, verse 48, that the judgment will occur at the last day as well. John 12, 48. Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has this which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And so when Christ returns, there will be a general resurrection of all and a general judgment of all. All on the last day. Implications. Well, concerning the judgment, it means that all men will give an account before God for what they have done in this life. Not simply the wicked, as we will see, but the righteous as well will stand before God, before the great judgment seat of Christ. All will give an account as to what they have done in this life. We'll talk more about that, but that's one grave implication that flows from that. So that everything that I do in my life has import because I will give an account for what I have done. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Whether good or bad. The second implication from this fourth truth is that the Lord will bestow in the resurrection of the righteous, the Lord will bestow an unspeakable inheritance upon his children. That inheritance of adoption the fullness and the completion of that adoption. But he will also give an unspeakable torment upon his enemies. These truths, I believe, have managed to escape the attention of many who have become caught up with with the craze of the times and setting dates. But the Apostle John himself, and according to his point of view, This cannot escape your attention, dear ones. Christ's second coming does and must make a difference in the life of every Christian. Now, as we consider the passage before us today, don't have much time, but uh, let us look at this passage. The first John chapter two, verse twenty eight. John has now completed uh, the three objective tests in chapter 2 by which you may know that you know God. The first test is that of obedience. Chapter 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. The test of love. Chapter 2, verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And the test of orthodoxy, chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Three tests. But presently, John now is about to embark upon a second voyage. 
through the same three tests, amplifying and building upon what he has just written. And so we come full circle to the first test once again, that test of obedience. However, instead of the phrase, the one who keeps his commandment, now the Apostle John, for the test of obedience, is using the phrase, the one who practices righteousness. But it's the same test. How do you know that you know God? The one who practices righteousness is the one who knows God. He is the one who is born of God. This week, we will address the subject of practicing righteousness and the second coming of Christ. Next week, we're going to consider practicing righteousness and the first coming of Christ. You see, John divides practicing righteousness up into two sections, dealing with the incentives and the motives that the second coming of Christ has in us living a righteous life right now. And then he goes and looks at the first coming of Christ and considers the motives for living a righteous life because Christ came the first time. Now you may ask yourself, why do we need all this repetition? John, why are you taking us through these tests all over again? Well, the term little children that we find in chapter 2, verse 28 is not only one of great affection, but it's also a reminder that we are all, in a very real sense, little children who need the faithful and repetitious instruction of our fathers in the faith. We should never grow weary or tired of hearing the same truth over and over and over again. We should never grow tired of it. In fact, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, Let him who is taught, literally, let him who is catechized, let him who is taught or catechized in the word share in all good things with him who teaches or catechizes. You see, katakao, that Greek verb there, refers to sound, to sound that is repeatedly sent forth into the ear again and again and again. In fact, our word echo, you can hear it in the word katakao, katakao. It's an echo. The word of God continues to echo in the ears of God's people as the word goes forth each Lord's day. That's the way God commands the pastor to preach and to teach. He's to be like an echo preaching the same truths over and over again until the word takes root and is evidenced in the lives of the flock. Dear ones, God would have you catechized in this truth today from 1 John chapter 2. And this would be the sermon in a sentence. The second coming of Christ is a powerful motive to practicing righteousness in your life. The second coming of Christ is a powerful motive to practicing righteousness in your life. Well, what in particular does John emphasize about Christ's second coming that we uh, that should move us presently to practice righteousness two things the judgment that's associated with the second coming and the resurrection that is associated with the second coming so let's consider these two events these two events are not merely theoretical they're not speculative doctrines These two events, rather, are certain to come and John directs now your attention to them so that you would practice righteousness today. Not tomorrow, but presently in your life. First of all, the judgment at Christ's second coming. Let us read verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Dear ones, I do not know of a more solemn subject than the great judgment seat of God. Most of us, I think, would prefer to simply avoid the thought altogether. 
because of the certain fears that we might have. And yet, this topic, this subject, is not like a passing dream that you can simply ignore, thinking it will pass away, that it will go away all on its own. Now, this is an appointment no person on earth will miss, or for which no person will be late. This judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever made an appointment with someone and wished you had not? Some salesman or maybe someone from uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or a cult has come to your door and you, just, you, you ask them to come back or something. It's just, oh, I wish that I had not made that appointment. And so you get on the phone and you try and cancel the appointment or you just don't show up for it. You're, you're gone when they're there. Well, dear ones, the final judgment is one appointment no one can cancel. No one will be late for. Everyone will be there. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says this. I read one passage or one verse there, the middle verse, verse 10 earlier, but listen to this passage. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Now notice the present effect that this judgment has upon Paul's life. He says, because of the judgment, he's going to mention that in verse 10, he says, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God now in light of the judgment to come. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Then verse 11, notice again the present effect that this judgment has upon the life of Paul. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing that the terror of God rests upon those who do not believe and trust in Christ, He says, we persuade men. The wrath of God abides upon these people. Do you understand? Paul says. Therefore, we persuade men. But we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. It is appointed unto men to die once. And after this, Judgment, Hebrews 9:27. What an awesome sight that will be. All the dead resurrected and all the living changed in, in, at the coming of Christ, translated at the coming of Christ, those who are living. All angelic beings, all demons, even Satan himself will be there. Now appearing before the Lord of glory. They will stand there. They will not be standing before the suffering servant in order for men again to falsely accuse Christ. They will not stand before Christ as the suffering servant in order again to mock Him before some kind of mockery of justice or to spit upon Him, or to blindfold Him and pummel Him with their fists, they will not stand before the Lord as a suffering servant to taunt and ridicule Him, or to whip Him as they did in His first coming, or to drive a crown of thorns into His skull, or to hang Him upon a cross to crucify Him. No. No. They will not appear before the suffering servant. To the contrary, all are there now to appear before the just tribunal, the Lord of glory. And to have the piercing eye of the omniscient Son of God reveal the true character of each man's life. Remember, dear ones, the historical context in which John was writing this letter. The Gnostic false teachers were seeking to subvert the truth by a false gospel. They had said that they could obtain the true knowledge of God apart from the Scripture, 
apart from the apostolic teaching, they, through their mystical experience, could gain this, this salvation, this knowledge that would lead them to salvation. However, these false teachers had deluded not only themselves, they had also deluded, deluded ones in the congregation there as well. And these had left the congregation. They had followed these false teachers out. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 19. Alarmed, for he knows that Christ knows who his own sheep are. And his own sheep will hear him and will follow him. And he will lead them and guide them. And so those who have left the true church of Jesus Christ, those who have gone and followed this other doctrine concerning Christ, were never a part of His. They never belonged to Jesus Christ, John says. You see, dear ones, the true sheep will not leave the church of Jesus Christ, nor will they leave the truth concerning Jesus Christ. For as Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christ's sheep will abide in the church and they will abide in the truth. And that's the meaning of John's words in John 2, 20, 1 John 2.28 when he says, And now, little children, abide. The command is in the present. Continue to abide. Continue to persevere in remaining in Christ. And how would they do that? By remaining in the church. By remaining in the doctrine of Christ. They would remain in Christ. John says, in effect, the false sons who were in the church have left. Christ has separated the chaff from the wheat. But you are not to follow them. You are to remain in Christ. To persevere. For Paul says, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We shall reap if we do not lose heart. You see, dear ones, those who continue to remain in Christ, according to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, will reap confidence and not shame on that final day of judgment as they stand before God's awesome bar and tribunal of justice, they will reap confidence before the Lord. While those false sons who feigned to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, who left the church of Jesus Christ, John says they will reap shame before the Lord of glory. You see, there are really, John says, only two responses from those who stand before Christ's bar of justice on that last day. Two responses. Not three responses. Not four responses. Not a mixture of the two. But there's only two responses that there will be on that last day of judgment. Confidence or shame. And every Christian... Every believer, no matter how he has wrestled with confidence in this life, after the resurrection, he will have confidence and stand before the Lord in judgment confidently. Dear ones, confidence is not a cockiness or an arrogance that exudes I deserve to be a child of God. That's not biblical confidence. That's pride. Biblical confidence comes only from the conviction that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where our confidence comes from. Not because of our own works of righteousness. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. That's our source of confidence. Nor is confidence an irreverence or a flippancy that cloaks itself in some false view of familiarity. It's so prevalent today, and I mentioned, mentioned this a couple weeks back, the view that you can let down your hair and you can devour those to whom you're related. You have to treat those who are outside the family in a real respectful, nice way, but you can just tear into your own family members. 
Why do you think in the fifth commandment, God says, honor your father and your mother? Now, why did he say that instead of honor your, your teacher uh, or the mag- civil magistrate? Why didn't he say that? Honor the teacher or your boss. And from that imply that we're to honor our family members. Why did he begin with the family? Because that is where the honor is to begin. And when it begins there, it spreads out to all other relationships of authority. But it begins in the family. This whole attitude of irreverence or flippancy cloaked as as a confidence before God. This kind of familiarity, irreverent familiarity with God, is abominable in God's sight. In the way in which men speak of God, the man upstairs, or J.C., they treat the Most High God as if He was just one of the guys. That if he, as if He was just a buddy. Or you go to some churches, the irreverence is uh, unbelievable. Let's give God a warm round of applause or let's clap for God. Let's give God a hand. Yay, God. It's unbelievable. It's an abomination in God's sight. Or what is most recent, that of so-called laughing in the spirit, where people in a, in a so-called worship service began rolling in the aisles, laughing in uncontrollable laughter, unable to stop, where, some, where someone who's speaking starts laughing and people come up on the platform and begin laughing, saying they're laughing in the spirit. <clears throat> On that day of judgment, no one, no one will greet the Lord of glory by slapping him on his back and bursting out in uncontrollable laughter. I'll guarantee it. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And even others today treat God just like they treat their own parents. And that's not good. They tell God off. They shake their fists in God's face. Not so on the day of judgment. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Dear ones, biblical confidence, listen closely, is a holy, emphasize and underline, holy boldness. Not an irreverent, cocky, arrogant boldness. And there is this holy boldness only because one comes in Jesus Christ. Because one comes having his sins cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This particular judgment on this last day is a judgment not only of our works, but it's a judgment of our words and a judgment of our thoughts as well. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 36, that every idle word will be judged. And even in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he talks... Paul says that the counsels and the intent of our own hearts will be made known on that day of judgment. That's not simply true of the non-Christian. That's true of the Christian as well. Every thought, every word, every deed will be scrutinized by the omniscient Christ. You may be asking, why? Why a judgment of works for the Christian when he's saved by grace? Very simply, in order to glorify God for his grace to those whom he has saved and to glorify God for his justice in punishing those 
who have rebelled against Him, who have disbelieved Him, who have turned their backs upon Him. To glorify God. God doesn't have a final judgment in order to learn more information about people. God knows all. The judgment is there to glorify His grace and to glorify His justice. And God's grace will be glorified in us in that every work that God has approved of, every thought that God has approved of, will be shown to have been wrought by the glory of His grace, not having come from us. And every sin that we have committed in thought, word, and deed will give glory to Christ because they will, be, they will have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we will stand before God, dear ones, in confidence on that final day. But not so for those who do not know Him. There will be a shrinking away in shame for those who have turned their backs upon Christ. John says, in Revelation chapter 6, it pictures the wicked hiding themselves in the caves, calling upon the, the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them because they don't want to see the face of the Lamb of God. You see, dear ones, this whole area dealing with the judgment of Christ has grave implications, has important implications and application to the way in which you live now. You need to let that truth settle in your heart. And if you belong to Christ, there will be a change in your life as you contemplate that final judgment. That final judgment, even though if you belong to Christ, you will pass through the judgment. You will be saved. Nevertheless, knowing that every thought, word, and deed will be scrutinized, will be evaluated, will be looked at, will cause you in your everyday life to practice righteousness. I've run out of time. There was one other point that I wanted to make and I will hold that off till next Lord's Day. Let me simply conclude by saying there are many things, dear ones, in your life that will motivate you to work harder. You men... Promotion in your job, a raise, more cells will motivate you to work that much harder. That's the way we men are. I know. You ladies, you women, what will motivate you to work harder? What will motivate you? in your domestic activities and duties in the home to work harder? A new appliance. New clothing. Various things like this will motivate you to work harder. It works all the time. It works with non-Christians as well as Christians. With children. What will motivate you children? to study harder, to work harder at, at your studies, at your homework. Dad says, you finish this particular subject and, and we're going to West Edmonton Mall. You, you accomplish this and Dad will buy this for you. This reward will be yours. Now, there's nothing wrong with rewarding Husbands or wives or children for faithful service. There's nothing wrong with that. But my point simply is this, that we are motivated so often by tangible things like that, that will pass away, that will end, that are temporary. 
God gives to you, dear ones, that which is beyond temporary, that which is eternal to motivate you, that judgment of Christ, as well as the resurrection, the resurrection in which we will, we will enjoy all of the benefits and the glories which Christ has won for us and purchased for us. These are the incentives and the motives that God presents before you and gives to you as his people in order to practice righteousness in your life. There's your hope, dear ones. Such a hope is worth persevering to the end in order to obtain. Such a hope will not disappoint. Such a hope will cause one to presently practice righteousness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, grant to us the grace today to live in expectation of those future certain events that will come at your second coming. Oh, Father, we so often live for the things of this life. We are so often motivated by what we can see and feel and taste, by what we hear, by what appeals to our senses. But God, we become so deaf to the truths that should really motivate us in living for you. Those eternal truths. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to take seriously the fact that we, all of us, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. We pray, Lord, that this truth will go with us to work. will go with us as we work in the home, as we study, regardless of the activities that you give to us. We pray that we will not forget, that we will continue to remember that we will be rewarded according to what we have done in these bodies. We pray that, Lord, you would help us, therefore, because we know we will reap if we do not give up, cause us to persevere in doing what is right. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.